So we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, going to wrap up our study through, uh, through this letter this morning. I want to read to you verses 1 through 3 to start. It says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so as Peter begins to uh, wrap up this letter and tie up the loose ends with some closing thoughts, you know, we've been seeing lots in the last number of weeks that he's been talking about suffering. Last week in chapter four, we talked about a judgment beginning in the house of God and fiery trials that we can experience. And I guess it's just appropriate that as Peter's been having that conversation that he also addressed church leaders because if judgment begins in the house of God, if God's people experience fiery trials, trials then, then church leadership needs to be ready for such things. Now, it's interesting that as Peter addresses church leadership, he speaks to the elders, the church leaders, as a fellow elder. You might want to just notice that he doesn't say, as the first pope of the church, I give these instructions. Okay, he's a fellow, he's a fellow elder. And one of the things, you know, he, he says, I'm a witness for the sufferings of Christ. I would say this, you know, as you think about Peter and in the context of wrapping up this letter and where he is at in his life and in his ministry, he's kind of like the grizzled veteran of church leadership. You know, he's the scarred up old warrior who is going to share some fatherly advice with other pastors, with other church leaders, with elders. You know, when I think of Peter as this old sage of, of, of church ministry, it's amazing to remember the early days of this man in his ministry. You know, where he was rough and he was impulsive and he was brash you know, Peter of the gospel accounts packed sort of this uh, youthful know-it-all exuberance that had not been seasoned by grace, that had not been seasoned by life, that had not been seasoned by experience. Um, was Peter compulsive at one point in time? Yeah, you could say Peter was a little compulsive with both his mouth and his sword. Was Peter... Uh, you know, domineering at different times. Yeah, you could probably say that about Peter. He, 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 he drove little kids away from experiencing the ministry of, of Jesus. Was he interested in what he might gain from doing the work of ministry? Yes, he was, because the Gospels tell us. At times he wanted to know, well, what about us, Lord? What will we get for the work that we do? But the beauty of Peter, uh, this beloved character of the Bible, is, is that there's a little bit of Peter in every single one of us. And the Lord never tossed Peter aside. He was never discarded because of the mistakes that he made in ministry. Peter learned to minister in grace as he experienced grace from the Lord. And he personally grew in the ministry of grace. And you get that sense as you read this closing chapter from him. Grizzled old veteran who has learned the grace of God. He, he, had, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You know, you think about Peter and, and his story and what we read in the gospel accounts that, you know, his, with his eyes, he watched and observed 
the grief that Jesus was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane that night that he was betrayed. Uh, with his own eyes, Peter saw the expression of Jesus' face when Jesus turned to him and said, could you not tarry with me one hour in the Garden of Gethsemane? With his own eyes in a moment that he'd probably like to forget, Peter made eye contact with Jesus after he had betrayed him three times. See, Peter witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so he says, look, I, I understand suffering. I saw what happened to Christ, and he's going to speak out of that. And so as we consider what Peter is, is, is sharing as a veteran of ministry, I just think it's awesome to think of his own story. To think of Peter being commissioned by Jesus when he was called to shepherd God's people. When Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. And so with all those experiences and life experience and church experience and ministry experience and gospel preaching experience behind him, Peter, I would say, knows a thing or two about shepherding the flock of God. And the beauty of, you know, how we serve God is this, is that in our service to God, God always links our past with our future. You, know, you think about Peter's story. Uh, yes, he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ, but he says, I am also going to be a partaker in the glory of Christ Jesus. The memories of his sufferings has been transformed into a hope for the future. See, only the grace of God can do that. Only God can take the sufferings of this life and turn it into hope for future glory for us human beings. And so this man was transformed as he served Jesus. He who had once denied Christ was now an heir of Christ. He who had witnessed the sufferings of Christ was a preacher of the glory of Christ Jesus. And so as he closes this letter, Peter's going to give uh, some important instructions. He's going to start with three that, that we should obey as specifically church leaders should obey in the face of difficult experience. But, but, but here's the thing. This is what I would say just to kind of lay the groundwork as we dive into this a little bit. The instructions that Peter shares here are applicable to every one of us. Uh, even if you're not a pastor or, or a church elder, somewhere, somehow, God has placed you in a, a position of ministry. Maybe it's in your home as the head of your home. Maybe it's in your workplace in the midst of a bunch of unbelievers. Maybe it's amongst your neighbors or with your children. God has given you a place of ministry on this earth. And these principles for church leadership will be helpful for you in the place where God has called you to serve. So verse two says this, he says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, I love the practicality of it. Just, hey man, where are you? Among you, the people among you, who's in your life? Where has God placed you? Be a shepherd in that spot. Be a shepherd. You know, a shepherd kind of really has two primary functions. What do shepherds do? They, f they feed the sheep 
and they tend to the sheep. That, that's it. It's, it's, it's really pretty simple. Anyone can do that anywhere. You know, you, you firstly feed. Feeding is that job where you lead others to water. You help them find nourishment, spiritual nourishment. You lead them to the bread of life. You know, I was thinking about when my kids were little and first eating food. My job as a parent and as one who could feed my child was to come between uh, their hunger, between them and their hunger. Here's your, you're hungry and here's you. I'll come in the middle and I'll give you what you need to satisfy your hunger. Now, people are spiritually hungry. And the job of the shepherd is to come between that person and their hunger with the word of God, with spiritual food, with the nourishment that comes from God, and we help them find true nourishment. We teach them to feed themselves. We point them to Christ who said, my blood is true drink and my body is true food, is real bread. And so firstly, a shepherd just leads people to food. Shows them where to eat. But the second task inherent to being a shepherd is this, is that we tend to the flock. We, which consists of a number of different things. You know, discipline, maybe having authority, restoration, material assistance of the sheep. Uh, you just tend. You take care. You nurture but all of those things are really, I would say, incidental in comparison with the role of feeding. That's the shepherd's job. The shepherd, the job of the shepherd is, is to get between, you know, the sheep and whatever might uh, be working for their peril to hurt them, a wolf or whatever it might be. And so if the Job of the shepherd is to feed and to tend. Well, that's something every one of us can do wherever God has placed us. You know, it's, it's kind of neat to say, hey, man, maybe God placed me on my street to be a shepherd to the people right here where I live, to care for them, to be concerned about their needs, to, to help them, to love on them. Now, the job of a shepherd is not, it's, it's not an easy job. And as what we're about to see here is that there, there are dangers that we face when we enter into the role of feeding and tending for God's people. And those dangers, they come from kind of two sources we're going to see in this text. They come from within, within each one of us, and they come from without. And so Peter shares some instructions to help us along the way. And although it's, again, although it's specifically directed to church, leaderships, I, church leadership, I think it's applicable instructions to all of us. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as you, as God would have you. He says this, not under compulsion, but it's a willing service. What this means is this, is that our service to God should be motivated by something that has happened within our own heart. Not by someone twisting our arm to serve. See, compulsion here means this. This, this idea of compulsion in this context is this, is to force someone to do something. And Peter's message is, is that nobody should have to prod you to pastor. Nobody should have to prod you to parent or to teach, 
or to lead others towards Christ. Nobody should have to prod or poke you to serve in the church, to help with kids' place or at a VBS or uh, to be involved in a worship team. Nobody should need to prod you to be about the work of the ministry with your children and training and teaching them. All of those things should be motivated from our own hearts, from knowing God. See, what is the greatest of commandments? What is it? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And the second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. And if you love God, you will love people and you will care about their spiritual condition. You will care about their hearts. You will care about their well-being. You will care about their eternity. And so the heart of the shepherd does not come and it is not birthed by coercion. It is not birthed by compulsion, but it is birthed out of a love for God. You know, you think about Jesus. No one forced Jesus to take off his outer robe to wrap himself in a towel and to wash his disciples' feet. In fact, they were like, what the heck are you doing? You can't wash my feet. You're the master. I'm the pupil. You can't do this to me. But Jesus said, you know, as we know, he said it actually specifically to Peter. Unless I wash your feet, you have no part, with, you have no part of me. See, his service was willingly done. And that's why it blew the minds of his disciple. He was the master. They were the pupils. Yet Jesus humbled himself to serve. And so it is for you and I in our service to God. We're to do it because we're willing. We're to do it because we love Jesus. And if you're not willing to serve God in some way, not willing to serve people in some way, then I would say this. You should take some time and examine your heart. Take time to examine your heart. Say, man, I got no desire to serve. Then you know, you should take some time to examine your own love for God because a heart that loves God will find a way to shepherd people, whether it's your children or the workplace or your neighbors or wherever it is. He also says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I like the, the King James here, you know, not for filthy lucre. That's great language. You know, people will pick up the ministry, the mantle of ministry for all sorts of reasons. Lisa and I this week, you know, there's a, there's a Calvary Chapel Facebook page, Calvary Chapel in Canada. And so some guy had sent this, this uh, contact message to it about how he was connecting with churches to build his business and God was leading this and that. And, and Lisa and I read it and we're like, wow, that's like totally shady, man. Um, you know, see, men will no doubt take up ministry and the name of God to fill their own purse, to pad their wallets, to build their businesses. And Peter says, look, this is, that's shameful. That's a shameful gain. You know, sometimes people do ministry for personal recognition or for the praise of men. And, you know, those who have such motivation are really unfit for the ministry of shepherd. See, shepherd, being a shepherd is something you should 
eagerly do, be willing to do something that you should want to do. But that's not just big money in pastoring. Did you know that? (laughs) He also says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, not domineering, but being an example. See, ideally, you know, Peter should not have to share this principle, actually, I would say. That those who are called to be servants should have to be warned not to be domineering. Just speaks to me of the wickedness of the flesh. It's true that you can be a minister of the gospel and yet you can let your heart become exalted with pride. Exalted with self. You know, we often equate power with position. And when God places us in in positions as those who tend and feed uh, God's flock and this look after the spiritual well-being of others. It's, uh, it's just natural, a human thing that pride lurks at the heels of power. Because we can, we can help others with their hunger and then not tend to our own souls. Tend to the hunger of our own souls. You know, we can tend to the well-being of someone else's relationship with Christ. And meanwhile, you know, the enemy, we're allowing the enemy to run raids and terrorize our own hearts like we read happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Philistines and Midianites and just running raids into their country. And we cannot let our heart be the land of marauders Those who minister need to tend after their own hearts. I would say this, the danger is that we disconnect our own spiritual health from the work of the ministry. And the heart swells with pride and those who disconnect uh, the health of their own heart from the work of the ministry run the danger of becoming domineering dictators as he's talking about. See, true ministry flows from being an example. It flows from being an example. I want to explain that for a second because when you're a minister, like every one of us, every member a minister, it doesn't mean you've arrived. Again, when you begin to think that you've arrived and the sheep, uh, when you begin to think that you've arrived, the sheep that are under your care are in serious danger. A dictator is on the, on the rise. See, shepherds need the same grace that they are called to preach. Shepherds are sinners, just like sheep, and working out their own sanctification. Still battling for victory over sin. Still learning to walk the walk and talk the talk. Shepherds are in desperate need for the daily grace given to mankind through Jesus Christ, just like everyone else. Called to be examples, is what Peter says. And so let me ask you this, just kind of a tough question. Tough set of questions. What if you were the example that everyone in this church followed? What if your quiet time was the example that we all followed? What if your prayer life was the pattern set for our church? What if we uh, followed your example of commitment to the church or followed your example of, of tithing? Or if everyone helped in the way in the kids' ministry the way that you do, would the church be bigger and stronger and healthier and 
Thank goodness. I mean, we're all called to be examples, but ultimately the example set for us is by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says this in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, to me, it's like Peter's comparing this eternal riches with physical earthly riches that are fading in their glory. He says, man, uh, the hope as we serve God is the glory that we will receive, that unfading crown. See, when we serve the Lord willingly and eagerly and as an example, the reward that will be given to us is something that does not fade like earthly riches. The unfading crown of glory. In eternity and when we're with the Lord, you know, every one of our efforts and our actions will be fully known and understood by the Lord and we'll know him in ways that we never could on this earth. There's a, there's a hope for a reward. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter reminds us, you know, that we are called to humility. In the last chapter, we, we saw how we were called to arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ Jesus had, who willingly suffered. And now Peter tells us, okay, there was the mind you were called to arm yourself, but now here's the clothing that you should clothe yourself in. Clothe yourself in humility. In fact, the original language uh, paints the picture that you should put on the apron of a slave. Put on the apron. Clothe yourself in humility. You know, it's been said, go stand on the mountain of the Lord until you discover your size. Be humble before the Lord. See, ministry is a privilege. Anywhere God has placed us to serve, it's a, it's a privilege to serve him. And it's not owed to me, and it's not owed to you. It's, it's not owed to me because I went to school to train. It's not owed to any one of us because... Uh, we have previous experience. Ministry is not owed to us because of our age. In fact, I would say if I or anyone develops an attitude that ministry is owed to me, it just reveals that pride has taken root in, in, in our hearts and it exposes that we have not been spending time in the secret place with the Lord. I've not been in the closet doing time with God. See, any sense of personal greatness will always be humbled in the presence of the Lord. The presence of God turns pride into lowliness. Pride has to bow in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the, in the 2-7 discipleship course uh, that I like to do, there's a study in the third book that I totally love. I always look forward to it when we get to it. It's, it's called Love in Action. And at one point in the study, it deals with pride and humility. And um, there's this little illustration in the study that, that I always love discussing because it, it, it kind of flips the equation on pride a little bit. See, we often think of pride as just one that thinks too highly 
of himself. You know, pride is that attitude of heart that says, God can't get anything done around here without me. But pride also discover, disguises itself in another way, and, and that's, it comes out really clear in that study. See, pride can also think too lowly of itself. Pride sometimes doesn't just say, God can't get anything done without me. Pride can also say, God can't do anything through me. See, the problem with both points of view is this, is that you are at the center of the equation. He can't get anything done without me, or he can't do anything with me. Yeah, it's about you. That's why. It's pride. And Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is humility? That's what I, I would ask. What, what is it to have a humble heart? Well, humility is certainly not a high sense of self. That's pride. But it's also not a low sense of self. That is also pride. Humility is not demeaning ourselves or thinking too poorly of ourselves. It's simply not thinking of yourself at all. That's what humility is. Christ, Christ, Christ. In Christ, I can do all things. You know what my problem is? Same problem you have. I just think about me too much. In fact, I know you think about me all the time too. <laughs> can you relate to that? I mean, how boring, how unfulfilling to think about yourself all the time. To make your world revolve around you. That is empty. It is unfulfilling. And that is not the blessed life. That, in fact, is the life that God opposes. That's what Peter tells us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, grace is, I think of it like a river. Grace always flows from God to the lowest point. Grace descends the mountaintop into the valley and onto the plain. The humble soul is given grace. It's just like a river. It flows down. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Unmerited favor. That's what God gives to the hearts focused on him. And it leads to fruitful service. It leads to influence. It leads to blessing. In verse 6, Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, I would say, you know, you can't be submissive and of a humble heart to other people until you are first submissive and of a humble heart to God. You know, the key of this verse is, as he talks about God exalting us, is that he says it's at the proper time. It's got to happen at the proper You humble yourself under the hand of God until the proper time. See, God never exalts anyone until that person is ready for it. It's first the cross, then the crown. First the suffering, then the glory. Moses was under God's hand for 40 years, living in the desert before God sent him to be a deliverer for the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. You know, Joseph's, Joseph was under God's hand. You read that story at least 13 years before God lifted him to the throne. And one of the evidences 
of our pride and that God is still working on us in regards to humility is when we have impatience with God. God, just let me out from under your hand. Let me loose, God. Let me loose. Maybe one of the reasons why we all suffer is so that we'll learn patience as we've been talking about suffering in this book. You know, I would say another way that humility also manifests itself is in handing its worries over to God. He says this, casting all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. You know, if you put the puzzle together here, it, it, it follows and it makes sense actually that worry is also another form of pride. Always at the heart of my worries is who? Me. Me. Because the world revolves around me. <laughs> That's how we feel so often, isn't it? But worry is another form of pride. Uh, us at the center. See, worry constitutes pride, constitute pride because it denies the care of God. It denies that God is sovereign. It, worry reveals that I am not trusting in the sovereign, all-powerful God who loves me and who cares for me and has good intentions and plans and purposes for me. See, worry points the finger at God and says, you don't have my best interests in mind. Remember one of the things that I've been saying for a few weeks now as we've been going through, Peter here and I have just found it so challenging is this, is that we don't live by explanations. But we're called to live on promises. Why God? That is not the question of faith. The question of faith asks, what for God? I'm going to hold on to your promises. And the scriptures promises us that God does have our best interests in mind. He does. What is best for us? You know what's best for us? Is that God's will be done. There's no safer place than to be under his hand. And so what does humility do? Humility learns to cast all of its anxieties on the Lord. Look at verse 7 again. It's really great in the ESV. I like it. Let me read it to you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know why it's good? Because it says casting. Not cast. Not cast, but casting doesn't speak of a one-time act, but something that must be done over and over and over again. That's important because you know why? When I cast my cares on the Lord, I have this habit. I go back and I take them. You know, it might be a day or two. Maybe it might be just an hour or a few moments. But I go and I take them back. And so we need to practice casting them onto the Lord, tossing them at his feet over and over again. You know, casting my anxiety on the Lord is a posture of humility. But one of the beauties of it is this, is that when we are casting our anxieties on the Lord, the Lord is actually training us. <laughs> Repetition. Let's do this again. Muscle memory, man. Over and over and over and over again. Cast your anxieties on me. Cast your anxieties. And what the Lord is doing, and we don't even sometimes re realize it, is that he is 
He is teaching us to rely on him. Teaching us to draw on his resources. Teaching us uh, to hang on to his promises. Uh, Leading us to that place where we are in a relationship with him where we are continually dependent upon him. Isn't that what we really want? I mean, don't you want to be dependent upon the Lord? Then sometimes, you know, the Lord can't take away our anxieties. He has to let them stay there so that we learn to cast them upon him so that he can teach us. You know, I was thinking about anxiety and worry and, and fear and all those sorts of things. There's such a terrible waste of energy. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, this is the smallest thing. It can just take you and destroy you and rip you off of your sleep and fill you with fear. But worries and fears and anxieties can be a blessing if we learn to cast them onto the Lord. It's kind of like weeding the garden. At our house, Lisa usually weeds the garden. But the weeds come back. You ever notice that about weeds? They just keep coming back and you got to go deal with them over and over again. And that's like anxieties. You, you cultivate the garden of the Lord so that he can dwell there. And you remove, you, you, you throw those anxieties onto the Lord. He says this in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So in my mind, this text kind of switches here because it was talking about internal dangers. As you're called to shepherd, as I'm called to shepherd, and we got these attitudes of pride and hidden things of our heart that can destroy us. Uh, Now the conversation moves to an outward danger as we do the work of the Lord, the devil. And so he gives us a game plan for dealing with Satan. The first thing he says is this, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. See that you are not intoxicated with crazy thinking or drugged into a spiritual stupor. You know, you think about just what it means to to be inebriated, to be under the influence of alcohol or narcotics, your your inhibitions come down. And so he says, your thinking needs to be sober. You got to deal with unhealthy thinking. Your inhibitions are not sharp and you're you're an easy prey for the devil when you're not thinking clear. You notice that? You're tired. You're hungry. There's certain times when You're just more prey to Satan. And Peter says, your thinking needs to be sober. You know, the scripture says this, that he who lives for pleasure is dead. Pleasure seeking might be the small G God of our culture. Ease, relax, carefree, pleasure. And it's in pleasure seeking where we can slide kind of into a spiritual and, and, and moral Stupor. You know, nothing, nothing wrong with summertime, man. Hey, by the way, we went to Secret Beach last Sunday. Remember, just uh, like 25 of us showed up. We just had a great afternoon at the beach and had a fire, and it was awesome. Look, there's nothing wrong with pleasure and rest and taking some ease. We need holidays. We need downtime. There's folks visiting here this morning that are on downtime, having rest. But if it's taken in too large of a measure, pleasure can become like almost like an opiate. And that's why I say in the kingdom of God, there's actually no retirement. You don't get to retire. When you're a Christian, there's no retirement. You go about the work of the kingdom always. Sharon's here this morning. I think of Pastor Bev Ward. 
No retirement, man. Those of you who know him, serve God till the bitter end. Officially in work? No, not necessarily, but out doing the work of the kingdom. See, when you slip into retirement or pleasure, it, it, it can be like this sedated state where rest becomes an opiate that drugs you and makes you vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. It said spiritual stupor is the devil's playground. It gives him a foothold. And so Peter says, be sober. Be, be clear thinking. Then he says, be watchful. Alert. Exercise your perception. Exercise your moral sense. Because the enemy will come in if you open the gate. If I open the eye gate and I let things in to my eyes, things that should not be, I... I open the gate for the enemy to come in and take advantage of me. I open the ear gate and I get involved in gossip or I'm filling my head with maybe music where the lyrics aren't pleasing to the Lord or what it not building me up or whatever it is. I, I open a gate for the enemy to come in and take advantage of me. And so he says, exercise your perception. Be watchful. Head up, man. That's what we say in hockey. Keep your chin up. You're going to get it. Keep your chin up. Be alert. Exercise your moral sense. You know, as we've been going through Peter, one of the challenges that I've sent personally from the Lord is not to neglect the pursuit of holiness. Okay, holiness isn't something that I get to put on the shelf for a period of time in my walk with the Lord. Yeah, no, ex pursue holiness. Be holy because I am holy. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan's looking for an easy meal. But here's the thing. Satan barks, loud bark, bite not so much. The scripture tells us he's been defanged. His attack is always about perceptions. Look at what Peter says. Is Satan a roaring lion? No, he's not. It says he's like a roaring lion. And there's a difference between reality and perception. He wants you to perceive him as a lion. Is he dangerous? Of course he is. He is dangerous. He, he is smart. He will outwit you. But as a roaring lion... It's mainly about perception. The, the, the subtle effect of a roar to get you on the defensive run. To frighten you. Ah, that's what I did. Did you read that story in the paper this week about the kayakers meeting the cougar? In Hotham Sound where we're going kayaking this summer, guys. My wife's like, keep Jonah close to you. Don't let him out of the boat. <laughs> She gave me the, the speech there as we talked about going to Hotham Sound after reading that. What, what did they do? The story said this. They never packed up camp so fast. They folded up their tents and they got out because a cougar just showed its face. And in dealing with Satan, the scripture says, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him. You don't pack up your tent when you're dealing with Satan. You put new pegs in the ground. 
You put new pegs in the ground. It's a roar. He's not a lion. He just wants you to perceive him as a lion. He wants to put you on the run. In fact, a great way to do it when dealing with Satan is to stretch out the boundaries of your tent. Say, no, in in faith, I'm going to resist you, Satan. I'm going to fight against you with the help of the Lord. Resist him, firm in your faith, verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be firm in your faith. See, faith is to be solid, firm, steadfast. It's, it's to be impenetrable like a wall. To be, to be firm in your faith, to be steadfast in your faith is to be sure of God. To trust him. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can man do to me? See, faith is an exercise. It it wrestles and it's determined and it's continued like Jacob. I love that story from the, the book of Genesis where Jacob wrestled with the Lord. He wrestled with the Lord until the sense of, you know, I would say wrestle with the Lord until the sense of the presence of God comes in confidence. Just wrestle until the confidence comes. Wrestle until like Job, you can say, I know that my Redeemer lives and I know on that day I'll stand with him. Wrestle. And so how do we resist the devil? Sober-minded, alert, watchful, and firm in our faith. Putting tent pegs in the ground. And verse 10 says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is after you suffered for a little while. Short time of suffering, I think, here is, is, is I mean, you can apply it specifically to things that you might be going through, but I, I, I would say it, it's just got the whole life on this earth in view. It's just a short time. You know, just in, in, in light of the glory of eternity, this life is a short time of suffering. And when it's over, the God of all grace who has called you will bring you into eternal glory with Christ. What a beautiful phrase about our God. They say he's the God of all grace. Grace is amazing. You know that? Amazing grace. There's a reason why everyone loves that song. Because it truly is amazing. See, God's grace, it just, it's manifold. It's got, it's got, it exposes itself in different ways. It's it's varied. It, It changes according to my need. You know, when my need is great, and when your need is great, God's grace is enough. When our need is small, his grace is sufficient. God's grace always fits and adapts itself to whatever our need is. It's sufficient. It's like, you know, this weather is awesome. Sometimes the sunshine is like life to your bones. Other times you love the rain because it's, oh, it's just nice. It freshens up the air and there's a fragrance to it and it's beautiful. And God's grace is like that. It's always just what the doctor ordered. 
Every single time you come to Christ, his grace will be perfect. It'll be sufficient. It will fit your need. When we're happy and everything's good, grace is sufficient. In the face of the roar of a lion, grace is sufficient. And God has promised he will make all grace abound to you. And so our various trials are only for a season, but the glory that will result, God always translates suffering into the hope of glory. The glory that will result for us will be eternal. And Peter uses a few words to describe the kind of character God wants us to have as he works by his grace. He says he wants to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. It means things like this. He wants to firmly set you fast. You know, as Christians, we don't need to be unsteady in our stand for Christ. What we need is our hearts to be established and, and it's God who accomplishes that by his truth. The, the believer who is established will not be moved in the face of persecution or led away by false doctrine. God's strength is to give us what we need for the demands of life so that we stand on a firm foundation. He wants to confirm us. He wants to strengthen us. He's laying a foundation. You know, as God lays his foundation in your life, just layer upon layer, and he does the work, he's equipping you so that you will stand in the face of the storm, founded on the rock, a believer who is grounded in faith and settled in Christ. God is at work in your life so that you will not be tossed to and fro and not be carried out around by every wind of doctrine. And so these terms, restore, confirm, uh, strengthen, establish, they're, they're architectural terms that God, uh, describing the work that God is doing in your life, painting this picture that God is at work by his grace and he is establishing you in Christ. And the entire structure of faith will be firmly planted and established. No fear of splitting you know, I got a slight crack in my foundation. No, no fear of warping. Every layer firmly and securely established by God. And so as you partner with God through Christ Jesus, the Lord will bring about his grace-filled character in your life. Jesus is the one upon, upon whom our lives are to be built. He is that solid rock. See, the God of all grace has called you to eternal glory. And so whether it be attacks from within or attacks with it without, humble yourself in the sight of God. Peter says, to him be dominion, to him be the power, the rule, the glory. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And verse 12, let's just wrap it up here. He says this. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanus is that character that you, it's believed that he's that character that you see all throughout the New Testament. Silas, he's also called. Sometimes hanging with Paul, sometimes hanging with Peter, but about the work of the ministry, a faithful brother. 
Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This reference she to who is at Babylon is kind of a bit of a mysterious one and the writings of Peter, it's, is he talking in code? Is he speaking in truth? Uh, you know, we don't really know. Uh, the city of Babylon actually didn't exist. It, I think it was in ruins at this point in time. And so as he says, she, he's referencing the church. And it could be code just for the church that is in Rome, uh, undergoing persecution. It, it, it could be he's speaking clearly, but... Uh, about a, a real a real church in Babylon, but whoever it is, we don't really know. He just says, "Send." We, she sends her greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss. Now, I was just thinking about this, dudes. A handshake will do, okay? A handshake will do here in 2013 at CTK. Love one another. You know, maybe a hug. Hugs okay, if ladies. You know, if you want to exchange a kiss, that's all cool. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Stand with me this morning and let's close.